Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. I was blessed to meet Father Dominic Legg at the Thomistic Institute's second annual Thomistic Philosophy and Natural Science Symposium this summer, where he graciously talked to me for nearly two hours on topics ranging from the Holy Land to Thomas Aquinas to graduate school and discernment, all the while not even knowing that I was a Tocqueville Fellow. I cannot fully express my gratitude for this conversation, and so I'm honored to have the opportunity to introduce him to you all today. Father Dominic Legg, OP, is the director of the Thomistic Institute and assistant professor in systematic theology at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, DC. He holds a JD from Yale Law School, a licentiate degree from the School of Philosophy of the Catholic University of America, and a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. He entered the Order of Preachers in 2001 after having practiced constitutional law for several years as a trial attorney for the US Department of Justice. He has also taught at the Catholic University of America Law School and at Providence College. He is the author of The Trinitarian Christology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Please join me in welcoming Father Dominic for his talk, Priestly Sins, Purifying the Church After the Scandals. Thank you, Noel. Well, I have to say that that's, I think, the best introduction I've received in a very long time. And the best qualification uh, I can imagine is that uh, I had this great conversation with Noel. And it, um, it was a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful privilege for me to uh, have the kind of um, opportunity to meet people like Noel and to be able to talk about some of the deepest questions, the most important questions. So that's also a great um, reason for me to be grateful to be with all of you and to be invited uh, by Professor Munoz uh, and the Tocqueville program to, uh, to speak here at Notre Dame today. And what a great day to speak about a subject concerning the church, the feast, uh, the solemnity of all saints. Uh, in a certain way, it's the, it's the solemnity of the church since we are members of the same body that these saints uh, are members in. and. Um, or members of, and they uh, are, I hope, interceding for all of us and interceding for the church here on earth uh, in the midst of um, a difficult time for the church, as we all know and have, have experienced. Uh, one last uh, word that maybe um, explains in part the invitation for me to speak today. Uh, Professor Munoz and I were locker partners in high school um, and uh, also college roommates, so we have a long history. Um, so it's really great to be able to now be colleagues in this, um, uh, the search for the truth that the contemporary university is, is supposed to be consecrated to. So the title of, of this talk is Priestly Sins, Purifying the Church After the Scandals. Priests can sin. That's not news. But there are also uniquely priestly sins and they have been very publicly in the news, especially over the past two years. So it seems to me that we should grapple with this truth, not just that priests are human beings and therefore are touched by original sin and they have personal sins and that they need God's mercy 
and they need to constantly be uh, examining their lives, examining their consciences, repenting from uh, their failures and their faults, going to confession. Priests do go to confession, as I hope uh, you all realize, and hopefully they go often. Um, it's very important, and we need it. Uh, it. In fact, it's one of the great privileges of the Dominican life that uh, my confessor is just down the hall. I can go knock on his door uh, anytime, and um, it's one of the one of the things about the religious life that um, maybe people don't often think about, that you have a community of priests living together, worshiping together, praying together, helping each other, uh, praying for each other, and uh, serving as confessors for each other. So um, that is a very, very healthy dynamic when you're talking about the reality of priestly sins. Because insofar as priests are fallen human beings, they are going to sin from time to time. They need the the mercy of God. St. Benedict, in his rule, uh, talks about the need for a constant conversion of life. And that's true. Uh, even someone who is hopefully making great strides in the spiritual life needs constantly to be coming back to the need for conversion in my own life. And the greatest saints recognize that they are sinners, and therefore, before God, have nothing to give him, but only receive from his goodness. St. Catherine of Siena, uh, a great Dominican uh, saint, was very clear about this and spoke very beautifully about it, writing about it, that she is she who is not before God who is he who is. So she has nothing vis-a-vis -vis God and always stands in need of his mercy and his grace. I think grappling with the particular danger or the particular pathologies that present themselves in priestly sins when they are not part of this pattern of conversion of life and repentance, this is actually very helpful, I think, for the church and for us to deliberate on as a group. Why? Because it both helps us diagnose the problems that need to be solved in the present moment and also because, on a more hopeful note, it's a kind of negative image that points us to the positive. So my desire is not only to focus on the negative, uh, but rather to attempt to diagnose with some clarity, I hope, what the core of the recent scandals have been, and then to view this in the context of the holiness of the church, the holiness of the priesthood, the transcendent dimension of the faith and also of the hope that we have in Christ that should repose its trust not on men, not on human beings, but in Christ. So let's begin by trying to identify the problem. Uh, what is the essence of the problem? We might even start with an objection, naming the problem might seem to add to the scandal. And I thought about this a little bit coming here to Notre Dame, where presumably there are going to be uh, people of varying ages in the audience. Is it going to cause more scandal by trying to go through what the real problem is? It seems to me that we're never going to clean up the mess unless we shine a light on it. And if we leave these crimes and sins in the shadows, either by trying to pretend that they don't exist or much worse by trying to cover them up, 
we're going to multiply the injuries and the injustices to the victims. And unfortunately, there are many victims. And we will perpetrate and perpetuate a real offense against God. So we shouldn't forget that, that these priestly sins are also sins against God. So what then is the essence of the problem? It seems to me that the starting point of the recent scandals that we've seen in the news over the past few years uh, has been sexually active priests and bishops. I think we all have seen that. Now, they're only a small minority of Catholic clergy. But their sins and crimes wound and victimize many, and they stain the reputation of us all. And not just of priests, of course, but of all Catholics in a way, all Christians. In the main, it seems to me that the persistent problem here has been with homosexually active priests. Now, that is a difficult thing to say, uh, but why note it? It's, it's because I think most priests who persist in infidelity with women eventually leave the priesthood. But priests who cheat on their vocation with men or with other clerics often continue to live a double life. And that's part of the problem that we've seen. So trying to understand what's going on there is important. Now, the sins that unchaste priests are committing of whatever, of whatever uh, moral species, uh, of the, the, the acts themselves, these sins are graver, more grave than adultery or other homosexual acts. Why? Well, they have the gravity of those sins, of course, but they're more grave precisely because they besmirch what is holy. Properly speaking, in the tradition of Catholic moral theology, we would say this is the sin of sacrilege, the perversion of holy orders, the defilement of a person solemnly and public, publicly consecrated to God in chastity. And the sin is even more grave when a bishop or a seminary formator or a priest uses the authority of his office, which is an office instituted by Christ for the sanctification of the faithful, uses that office in a perverse way, in the service of shameful and selfish passions. So the higher the abuse of authority in cases like this, the more grave is the sacrilege. So we can think of these as private sins or sins done in the dark, but in the end, they're not private sins of individual Christians. And in fact, as we've seen, the victims suffer more because they're abused not by private individuals, but by priests who are ministers and representatives of God. And there's something more profoundly wounding about that. These crimes dishonor and offend God, and they wound the church in a unique way. Now, there's an additional development that came to light, especially in the, the case uh, regarding former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. It seems reported in the news that in some places at least, there have been networks of unchaste priests who have developed. And they seem to protect and promote their own and others who tolerate them. Now, if this happens, it becomes a kind of cancer in the life of a diocese or a seminary or a religious order. 
especially when networks like this insinuate themselves into positions of power, as seems to have happened in the case of Theodore McCarrick. Now, focusing here on sacrilege is important, it seems to me, because, precisely because it helps us remember that we're dealing with something holy, the holiness of the priesthood, of the episcopacy, of the church. And I would suggest to you that we should not give up on this call to holiness. Bishops and priests should be holy. And we should want them to be holy and help them to be holy. They must pray for it. We must pray for it for them. And with the help of grace, God willing, they strive for it. And in fact, some of them really do become holy. That's something we should not overlook. So in the midst of what might seem to be a, a lot of very dismaying news, we also can discover the holiness that shines forth from those who actually really are cooperating with the grace of God. OK, that's the kind of acute problem that came to light over the last couple of years that's been most clearly in the news. But there are deeper pathologies underlying this crisis that I would like to draw out. The first is what I would call a despair about chastity. In the wake of the sexual revolution, today's secular culture, the culture that all of us in a certain way are marinating in, the secular culture claims that for many people, chastity is simply impossible. They would even say it's harmful to try to be chaste. This is a kind of secular dogma, and it's directly opposed to the Lord's teaching and promises. But it seems that in some quarters of the church, priests and sometimes even bishops themselves mouth the view that it's impossible to expect everyone to be chaste and to live as Christ's calls. So what's going on there? Does not a view like this contain a hidden despair about chastity, about the power of grace, able to transform our lives, about the power of grace to conquer sin and vice, about the real possibility that a human being with God's help can really become holy. In fact, Christ calls every person, whether priest or lay, married, celibate, every person to live chastely according to his or her state in life. That's true about the priest, it's true about married people, it's true about single people, it's true about separated people uh, or divorced people. He promises the grace to make this possible. In fact, if you read carefully through the Sermon on the Mount, chastity is at the heart and soul of the truth that Jesus teaches there about marriage, divorce, the depths of conjugal love, about being pure of heart, because the pure of heart are blessed and will see God, he says. This chastity is a work of grace. It's not a penance. It's not a deprivation. That's what the secular culture would have you believe. It does not refer, as many people think, 
to the repression of one's sexuality. It refers rather to its right ordering. The chaste person governs his passions rather than being enslaved by them. Chastity is the virtue by which one subjects one's sexual desires to reason so that one's sexuality serves not lust, selfishness, or manipulation, but one's true end. By chastity, one becomes capable of a total and permanent gift of self, a gift that does not seek to possess, use, or dominate another. In short, it's indispensable for following the way of Christ, which is the only authentic path to joy, freedom, and happiness. And in fact, in the Gospels, Jesus often repeats this call and this promise. It's a promise of his. Because he is going to give us the grace that will make this possible for us. He teaches that chastity really is possible, even in the most difficult cases, not because of our power, not because of our strength, but because when we recognize that we're weak and we need God's help, he will not fail to give us this help. It's one of my favorite lines in St. Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's a very, very important spiritual truth to learn. We will not be saved in the end because we are strong. We will be saved because we recognize that we are weak. And God knows that. He knows that much better than we do, in fact. He's not fooled into thinking that we're strong because we put up a good facade. He knows that we need his help. He came as man to save us precisely that we would have that help. So he understands the position that we're in, and he's ready to help us. And more importantly, even than recognizing, or just as importantly as this, recognizing that God's grace is more powerful than our weakness, than our sin. And it can transform someone who is trapped in sin and give them the true freedom that Christ wants them to have. That's what chastity is about. So to say that chastity is impossible is simply to give up on the promises of Christ. And that doesn't seem like the right attitude for a minister of the church to have. The second pathology that I'd like to note is it's related to what we've been talking about. It's the spread of sacrilege and the loss of a sense of the holiness, the holiness of the church, of the priesthood, of the sacraments. And the problem of unchastity becomes acute for a priest in a particular way. Why? Because he's constantly dealing with holy things, such as the regular celebration of and reception of the Eucharist. So if a priest becomes trapped in a cycle of sin, especially a cycle of grave sin, it's more dangerous because he's so much closer to things that are holy. If he sins gravely without repentance and sacramental confession, the classical theological tradition says that he's making what's called a sacrilegious communion when he receives the Eucharist. So this very practice, unfortunately, was widely proposed to seminarians 
by certain moral theologians starting in the years after the Second Vatican Council. Their rationale went something like this. If you're dealing with unchastity in your life, you're probably dealing with a psychological compulsion, and unchastity isn't really all that grave anyway. If you don't go to Holy Communion, you'll just draw attention to yourself. So just resolve to confess your sin later, and then go ahead and receive Holy Communion or celebrate Mass. Now, we don't have time for a full diagnosis of the problems presented by this view, but at a minimum, I would say, it includes the marginalization of the sacrament of confession in theology, in seminary formation, and in concrete pastoral practice. So in theology, there were various theories uh, popular in this period, holding that you're probably already forgiven of your sins. And so going to an individual confession and receiving a sacramental absolution, probably you shouldn't think of that so much as causing forgiveness of your sins. Rather, absolution would now be seen as a sign to you that your sins were already forgiven so that you can accept and internalize the previously existing forgiveness and reconcile you juridically with the church. The idea is sort of like, you're, as soon as you even want to go to confession, you're probably already good. And so you don't really need to follow through on it. Uh, in seminary formation and in concrete pastoral practice, it was thus no longer thought that one needed to confess regularly if you were gonna approach Holy Communion. And part of the story here is the controversy after 1968 over contraception. Priests and moral theologians were now telling people that they could contracept, which the magisterium had formally taught was grave matter and therefore potentially a grave sin. So these priests and theologians were telling people that they could do that and still go to communion even without confessing that sin. So it follows from this that other sexual sins, previously thought to be grave, might receive the same treatment. And it seems that this is precisely what seems to have happened in the mentality of the priests themselves. So if it's okay in that case, then maybe it's okay in my case, and then I don't need to worry about it anymore so much. But it's an unhappy fact that when a priest begins to fail in chastity, I mean, it's true, about, it's true about anybody who begins to fail, but particularly when it's a priest, that this often leads to further problems, including a loss of the sense of the holiness of the Eucharist and of the, and of the other sacraments. Sin tends to make us blind and numbed. So the evil of sin ceases to appear to us so significant. And it often leads to being kind of vague about this kind of stuff, a minim minimizing the spiritual danger that it presents. Well, it's not really that bad. And of course, that's going to lead eventually to a devaluation of the importance of confession. More generally, these problems often lead, especially the priest, but others too, to a crisis of faith. St. Gregory the Great, one of the great 
popes recognized this a long time ago when he classed lust as one of the capital vices. According to St. Gregory, lust gives, gives birth to evil daughters, and the first of these are blindness of mind and thoughtlessness. That is, as one's desires and one's mind becomes more and more focused on low corporeal bodily things, one's mind becomes captured by these things, by these images, by these less worthy goods. And the mind thus becomes less and less capable of sensing or seeing the beauty of the spiritual realities known by faith. So that's actually extremely important for the priest to be able to see the truth of the faith, the beauty of the faith, and to communicate it to others. And when he begins to lose his sight of those things, it's going to be a problem. So we should not be surprised then if this kind of cycle of vice would also lead to possessiveness and selfishness, a kind of worldliness. And I'm afraid that this aspect of the scandal has been coming to light more recently. There have been a number of financial scandals concerning bishops and priests. And if you look closely, often those are associated with or correlated with, in some sense, allegations of sexual impropriety, too. It's not in every case. But in general, where there's a problem with chastity, with priests, usually there's also a problem with money. Living an unchaste lifestyle requires money. And most priests don't have an easy source of money on their own. And so they may begin to misappropriate money that is entrusted to them for their own ends, spending it on scandalously selfish or self-indulgent things. We've also seen news reports of the abuse of authority. This is another aspect of the fallout from this kind of mentality, and even worse when you see outright manipulation and exploitation. Here, I think, we begin to see the, the way the negative image now points us to something positive. We've been talking about a lot of very negative things. I'm hoping to now start transitioning to something a little more positive. Uh, the priest has a real authority. And it comes, ultimately, from Christ. It, above all, concerns spiritual things. So there's a great danger when priests, or the church more generally, uses this authority for unspiritual ends, or non-spiritual ends, worldly ends especially. That can even begin to happen when someone uses that authority for political ends. And here is something that maybe the Tocqueville Center would be uh, quite interested in discussing. The church, of course, is an entity in the world. It is visible. And the church needs to engage in the debates in the public square. I myself have enjoyed doing that uh, with Professor Munoz on, on many occasions. But when the church becomes principally seen as a political actor, rather than the steward of the mysteries of God and the visible presence of a kind of universal call to communion in Christ, then there is a danger that the transcendent orientation of the church will begin to fade from view. So as a priest, actually, this is something that uh, I and many of my confreres are, are aware of, especially when you're approaching an election year, you're preaching from a pulpit, and 
you might have political opinions. I mean, of course, priests are human beings. They're going to have political opinions. Uh, when do you speak about those things from the pulpit? I think it's very important for the priest to be quite circumspect about how to do that. Now, that's not to say that you don't bear witness to the principles, but if you begin to be seen as campaigning, uh, you are endangering your authority with respect to the real things that you're asked by Christ to teach people about, uh, which ultimately is not just about this world. Of course, using things in this world rightly is very important, so we have to speak about them, but we have to speak about them in the right way. In other words, the high and transcendent nobility of the church is that she is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of God who in this world are sojourners and have no lasting home because our life is supposed to be on high with Christ in God. And that's also the high and transcendent nobility of the authority of the church's ministers. So a priest who uses this authority for his own selfish ends, or even in the service of uh, overtly political ends, may find that it will work for a little while because it's a kind of borrowed authority from Christ, but that ultimately this authority tends to melt away because it is Christ's authority and he wants you to use it for, for what he gave it to you for. So to use another analogy, if we begin to think of the church just as a uh, this worldly actor, it's a bit like ceasing to look up at the sky and to see the sun and the moon and the stars because we're so fixated on something that captures our attention more vividly, like the meager brightness of a digital screen in a darkened room. And certainly we've seen plenty of people, we could probably identify people who, who may succumb to that temptation in a digital world. Rather, I would say the goal of the priest should be to gaze upward and to see this world in the light of God, in the light of the sun. Or to put it another way, the goal of the priest in a certain sense should be to become increasingly transparent to Christ. He's supposed to be an instrument of Christ. And this is most of all evident in the Mass when the priest lends his very voice to Jesus and speaks his words, this is my body, this is my blood. So the power of the priesthood cannot be greater than at that moment or in the moment when the priest forgives sins in the confessional or baptizes a child and makes him or her a new creation by water and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so deep a betrayal if the priest abuses that supernatural authority it's actually a betrayal that's much greater than the abuse of authority by any elected or governmental official because the source of the authority is higher. So I hope by talking about this sort of negative image, we're getting a positive appreciation also of the importance and beauty and transcendent nature of the church, which is visible and also pointing us to something transcendent. Uh, what about the, the hierarchy of the church? the authority of the church as we see it in its hierarchical form. I mean, hierarchy is not something that in contemporary uh, democratic societies we like to talk about very much. Um, but in fact, there is real hierarchy in the world. 
and it's a kind of natural feature of the world, and there's hierarchy in the church, and God seems to have willed it to be that way. Christ instituted the church in this way. How does the hierarchy work in this scandal, and how do we see what it's really for? So how has the church hierarchy done in response to these scandals? I mean, if we were to take a poll here, uh, I imagine it would not be a, an A-plus score. It was especially evident that there were problems with the revelations about former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. The McCarrick case shows that when you have an informal network of unchaste priests, then you have a, a bigger problem than just an individual unchaste priest. Um, and it can compromise the hierarchy's response. That was part of the difficulty. Now, I should just add that I'm not here speaking about the issue of the abuse of minors. In fact, most of this talk, I've not been really thinking about that issue, um, even though it's a very grave one and a very important one for the church to address. But I would suggest that uh, in 2002, when the Catholic bishops put in place in Dallas a charter on this issue, uh, it seems that that has done a pretty good job in addressing the problems going forward. So we, we do occasionally see news stories about abuse of minors or abuse of children, but most of those cases took place before 2002, and they're just coming to light now. In large part, it seems like the issue of the abuse of minors has not been completely eliminated, but at least is under control. And I mean, I, I certainly see from my own experience in my own religious community that there are very clear norms, and if there's any, any allegation, there's a very clearly defined set of steps about how that's going to be responded to, the, the priest is going to be removed from ministry, and so forth. Um, so that's not what I'm talking about. But if you think about the McCarrick case uh, and other cases where senior priests have been involved in unchaste activity and other scandalous activity, how has the hierarchy responded? Well, some bishops have been exemplary in responding. Uh, they've acted with discretion, which is necessary, but also firmness, also necessary. But some bishops have not. And it seems that some may even have known of the problem and not responded. There's sometimes even allegations that they've actively covered the problem up. And that would be a very bad thing indeed. The traditional names for these kinds of sins would be hypocrisy. And we could also say corruption. Uh, that's when a bishop might know, formally or informally, or should have known about a problem, and have at least tolerated it, or perhaps covered it up. Some Catholic laity feel like the bishops have not sensed the extent of the problem, and that they are not sufficiently angry about it, and are not moving quickly enough to clean it up. Now, I think the bishops have sensed that there's a problem, and they are trying to do something about it, but perhaps they're taking an overly cautious approach, or at least that's the way it appears to some. One that might err on the side of protecting the institutional prerogatives of ecclesial bodies, rather than exposing the problems and rooting out wrongdoers, and importantly, protecting the vulnerable. So that might seem like a failure to protect the victims, the little ones who suffer from this abuse. I've had, in fact, 
conversations, too many to count with lay people who feel this way. And I think perhaps a good way to think about this is to think about the bishops as fathers. Uh, we want bishops to act like loving fathers who defend their children, who get angry when their children are threatened, and not who look like corporate managers who are managing risk or avoiding lawsuits and bad publicity. Now, bishops have a very hard job. So we should acknowledge the, bro the broader context that they have to confront. And here, there's a pathology that isn't their fault. In Western culture, generally speaking, it's become increasingly difficult for anyone charged with responsibility for an important good to defend that good when it requires discipline and correction. So I'm sure uh, many of you would be familiar with this problem, just as parents. Parents confront this problem all the time. So do teachers, so do coaches, so does anyone charged with authority. It's become very difficult to discipline and to correct. And this affects the church as well. Just think of the life of a parish priest who might want to implement some changes in his parish, but fears how the people will react and is sort of cowed by that and therefore takes just a very cautious approach. So bishops, too, face this challenge. In this scandal, I think we see very clearly there's a need to mete out discipline and even to punish. Like when there's a pathology, you need to deal with it. You have to protect the common good. But that doesn't make you a popular person, especially when the offenses are hidden. And that's also often what bishops are dealing with. They may know about some hidden offense. They want to correct and make an issue an appropriate punishment, but they don't want to publicize the wrongdoing of the person who has acted wrongly uh, for reasons of protecting of scandal. And in fact, this is also is a traditional part of Catholic moral theology, that you don't want to besmirch the, the name of someone uh, without a very serious reason, even when what they've done, uh, even when they're truly accused, like even if they're really guilty. So this challenge was especially evident in the case of Theodore McCarrick, it seems to me. Um, but after all is said and done, I think many Catholics would say that they were disturbed that more bishops weren't willing to risk being unpopular or being criticized in order to do the right thing. Okay, we've outlined uh, these um, problems. What about solutions to the problems? It seems to me that there are some good solutions to propose, but there are also some, some false solutions that are important to, important to avoid. Some uh, immediately identify the root of the problem as clericalism. Now, clericalism is wrong, and it, not, it must be rooted out. But it seems to me that in this context, clericalism is not the biggest problem. Actually, I think the biggest problem to cleaning up the mess is a lack of clarity about the true nature of the problem. And I think the underlying problems in order of moral gravity can be quickly cataloged. I've done it already. Sacrilege, the abuse of sacred authority, 
unchastity. And then a second order problem is a failure to discipline those who are doing these things out of fear or respect of persons or hypocrisy or worst of all, perhaps moral complicity. So these are the problems, it seems to me, that need addressing. And we need to be able to talk about it openly in order to actually come up with the right solution. Okay, others have argued that the solution for the crisis is going to a kind of congregational or conciliar model for the church, where the bishops and priests have responsibility for the sacraments. Okay, Catholic dogma requires a priest to celebrate the Eucharist. But where we entrust to lay councils the real authority over church governance. Now, I would say this, this also is not a valid Catholic solution. The episcopal structure of the church or the hierarchical structure of the church, the existence of bishops themselves, this is not a human invention. It was Jesus who gave to the apostles and their successors a share in his divine authority over his body, the church. So the bishops and their priests as their co-workers are ministers of Christ, who is the head, the shepherd, the bridegroom of the church. And this is the basis for their spiritual fatherhood. So bishops are supposed to be our fathers, who provide for us spiritually, who teach us, and who protect us. So I think this is a useful analogy to think about the solution. What do you do if your human father is messing up? If he's a loser? If he cheats on your mother? if he drinks too much, if he spends all the family's money? What if he abandons the family? The answer is not to say fathers are bad and we should get rid of fatherhood. We should get rid of all fathers. No. Nor should you try to replace your father with someone else. Rather, the answer is to go to your father and say, Dad, it's time to get your life squared away. It's time for you to come back home. We need you. And I'm going to help you to do the right thing and to get your life back together. So it seems to me that this analogy can help us think of ways to help the church at this moment. So we cannot do without bishops and priests. They have a hard job. They may not always do it perfectly. But there's no supplanting them or their authority. We need to do what we can to help them and that may mean nudging them to do their job and also supporting them when they're doing the right thing. So I'll have a few more words to say about that in just a moment. But another false solution that's been proposed is going to a married clergy. Now, I think this would be a very bad development. Uh, why? That's because clerical celibacy is not a burden or a privation. It's a positive call for a man to be consecrated entirely to God. So it's a grace. It's a grace by which a young person makes a profound gift of self, self to the Lord in imitation of Jesus himself, the perfect chastity of the Lord Jesus. And it's a concrete imitation of Christ's own way of life. So it's a valuable sign to the world of the existence of God of the kingdom of heaven, and of the surpassing value of belonging to him. Jesus himself says about this call to follow him in chastity, he who is able to receive this, let him receive it. It's a good. It's a gift that comes from him. Now, it's a difficult good. So if I can speak 
in autobiographical terms for a moment, I myself would never have pursued celibate chastity if I could have found another way to be a priest. Uh, when I was thinking about this, like, I would have happily taken the path towards married priesthood. But having been pushed to examine the question of Christ's call for me, I discovered that chastity, celibate chastity, was a gift. In fact, one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. So chaste celibacy is an offer from Jesus to receive more love from him, to be capable of loving God more. It's a call and an offer to receive more love from other people and to be capable of loving them more. And this blew me away when I realized this, that the call to the celibate priesthood, the call to chastity, is about love. It's about enlarging the heart. It's about being able to love God above all things even more radically. So Jesus promises that those who renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive a hundredfold. And that is not an idle promise. I've experienced it in my own life as a very real truth. It's wonderful the way God gives to the priest these joys of being welcomed into so many families. I mean, the family of Professor Munoz is just one example for me. And that's why the Lord exhorts those who are able to receive it to receive it. So I think switching over to a married clergy will, I fear, eventually push us towards the situation that the Orthodox churches face where there's an increasing number of diocesan clergy who are married, where that becomes sort of very typically the case, with the religious orders in the Orthodox churches, these are the monks, uh, being really the only ones who preserve celibate priests on any large scale. Now, if that were to happen, it would stand to reason that uh, in our cultural context and in, in that ecclesiological context, those who would tend towards celibacy would on the whole consist of an even larger proportion of men who experience same-sex attraction and might have difficulty, uh, potentially, with being in the environment that you, that you are in when you're living in an all-male religious community. But even aside from that, I think abandoning clerical celibacy will have catastrophic spirit, spiritual effects on the church. Why? Because a celibate clergy, when they're chaste, becomes enormously supernaturally fruitful. Chastity really does open one to spiritual fecundity. And it also encourages a kind of spiritual asceticism so that one does not manipulate or become possessive of the people in one's pastoral care. Why? Because the heart is consecrated to God alone. Okay, so what, where then can we find true solutions? I think it's most important to see these in the right theological frame of reference, uh, that of sin and of grace. If anyone is trapped in a cycle of sin, then the help of God's grace is needed to escape it. And actually, it's wonderful the way God can break the cycle of sin and raise us up 
to see God in the end uh, and purified of unworthy desires. God can remake our desires. It takes time, but it is real, and I've seen it happen in the lives of many, many people. So if this is true for any individual, that one is uh, trapped by sin and liberated by grace, able to be raised up by grace, then wouldn't it also be true for us as members of the mystical body in a kind of communal sense that insofar as in a certain way the, some members of the church have been trapped in this, that we together could seek out the grace of God and be raised up to escape this cycle of sin? In the midst of the McCarrick revelations, I was very discouraged and uh, just feelings kind of oppressed in mind by the constant like return of these mm, tawdry and very discouraging facts and images right, about what had been going on. And I happened to be reading a work by uh, Pseudo-Dionysius. Now, Pseudo-Dionysius, one of the church fathers, speaking about the ascent of the mind to God. And it was such a salve for me to do that. Why? Because I began to just vividly experience how the mind can rise from what is tawdry to the pure light of God. The mind is made to ascend above the realms of this world to the unchanging holiness of God himself. And that's the remedy that we want. We want the church to rise and to recapture the dignity and purity of that baptismal holiness. So I think ultimately that's the remedy, purifying the church by the grace of God. Well, how can we do that? Well, obviously we can't do it on our own. That has to come from God. But insofar as we're all members of one body of Christ and connected to Christ our head by a living bond of love and connected to each other through him, we can help each other. We can help purify the church insofar as we are purified, insofar as we pray for other members of this body, and especially for priests, for bishops, for the pope, for the whole church. Now, it seems to me that perhaps we haven't done enough of this. I remember uh, also very vividly celebrating Mass the Sunday after Pope Benedict had resigned. And he had said that he'd resigned because he just found that he uh, didn't have the strength to continue. And I, I felt like I needed to examine my own conscience. How much had I prayed for Pope Benedict? How much had I tried to take on some of the burden that he was carrying? How much are we trying to do that with the bishops? I think maybe we should do that. That would be a classic remedy for the kind of problem that we're facing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it took on some visible shape, some movement of prayer and penance? I don't really have a formula for this, but I would love it if, for example, the US bishops proposed that every parish pray the rosary for the purification of the church after the principal Sunday mass in every parish or to reinstitute some penance. Uh, the classic one would be abstinence from meat on Friday, 
Uh, by the way, today is a solemnity, so you're okay. But this could be a kind of penance for the uh, faithful in the U.S. to adopt for the purification and strengthening of the church. Well, okay, what if the bishops aren't going to do that? Well, actually, you could do that. You don't need a priest to pray the rosary. You don't need a priest to abstain from meat on Friday. You could start a rosary group in your dorm or in your parish or make a rosary pilgrimage. I mean, here at Notre Dame, what better place to do it? If we want a movement for accountability and transparency, let's start with this spiritual dimension. Okay, a few concluding thoughts because I've gone on for too long. When we think about the scandals of the church in ages past, we often also think about the cavalry of saints that God raised up. So we imagine this cavalry riding over the hill just in the nick of time to bring rescue to the besieged church in a crisis. And somehow, even when in times past you had bishops or popes who were corrupt, the saints managed to get us through. You might think of St. Catherine of Siena. So we could look around today and say, well, where's the cavalry? Like, where's the cavalry coming over the hill? Can you hear their bugles? Well, maybe there is no cavalry coming. At least no cavalry coming from someplace else. Maybe we're supposed to be the cavalry. Maybe we're supposed to be the saints. Now, you might be thinking, well, Father, that's great, but the problem is I'm not a saint. Well, I'm not either. Isn't that part of the problem? Isn't that, in a certain way, the problem, the root of it all, part of the scandal, that the church would not be populated by saints? So we shouldn't minimize the very real sins and crimes of the clergy, to be sure. But we can also say, as St. Catherine of Siena did say in her own day, my own sins have contributed to the evils that are plaguing the world and the church. So then my own failure to be part of the cavalry of the saints is precisely the problem. So Jesus' call is to us. He called very humble Galilean fishermen who themselves were not worthy of being apostles, but they transformed the world by their fidelity, by their preaching, by their willingness to suffer in bearing witness to the truth of Christ. And you and I can do that too. God will offer the grace for that. So if it doesn't happen, perhaps it's because we're not actually playing our part. So let us then love Christ. Let's love the church. Let's pray for the grace that he will make us saints who will lead the world through this dark moment and into the wonderful light of God. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Munoz. Thank you, Father Legg. My name is Isaac Kimmel. 
I'm a third year PhD student in sociology here at Notre Dame. I work upstairs. Um, I'm a fellow CUA alum. I was there from 2012 to 16, so Great. we overlapped a little. Frankly, I emphatically disagree with your argument that clericalism is not central to the problem of the sex abuse crisis in the church. And I make this argument on the grounds that clericalism and the abuse of authority that you talked about are inextricably intertwined. So um, priests who are sexual predators, you know, it's, it's, the problem is not that they expand their spiritual authority into spheres that they don't belong in. It's that they abuse their spiritual authority and use it um, insofar as people give them the benefit of the, of the doubt in a way that they shouldn't. So um, because priests are figures of spiritual authority, people are willing to look the other way. Oh, surely Father's so saintly, he's not doing such and such. Or, oh, Father's so saintly, surely if he says this is okay, it must be. Um, and, you know, this is, like, closely analogous to situations of abusive power that we've seen outside the church in the last few years um, with the whole Harvey Weinstein scandal and various other political and economic figures who have been accused. And I think that's really closely, um, not even analogous, but it's the same issue that we're seeing in the church. And as with those political and economic spheres, I think that that same sense of spiritual authority um, works in priests to give them the sense that they're the only ones qualified to handle the problem and that um, you know, creating scandal is worse than um, actually rooting out the issue. And I think that that's preserving the decay that's going on in the church. So in your view, is the situation that's going on in the church analogous to what's going on with Harvey Weinstein and all these other political figures? Because in my view, it absolutely is, and I think you are off base. Well, actually, I don't think we disagree very much. Um, I think I, I agree entirely with you. So it may just be a question of how, what we mean when we say clericalism. Or, I mean, I didn't mean to suggest that the abuse of authority is not uh, deeply part of the problem. I tried to you know, give a whole section of the talk to that. And maybe the right label for that is clericalism. Um, I'm concerned uh, with the label of clericalism that it's used to camouflage the other issues that are there, which also need to be confronted, which are about unchastity, I think. Um, and it can also, it, it can be a confusing label because it's fraught with a lot of historical significance. It, it's been used in the past, I mean, it has a long history going back centuries, uh, to, to challenge whether there is any authority in the church. And so I don't want to suggest that there is no authority there. I want to say there is an authority, but it's been abused. Um, so I think maybe um, you would agree with that, uh, that there is some authority. I think you're absolutely right that, the, um, that it's a very big problem when priests begin to uh, seek out special treatment, um, even if it's something small like um, you know, wanting to get moved to the head of the line uh, in the, when you're waiting for a table at the Italian restaurant. You know? Uh, and there are some places that, that will do that. I'm always embarrassed by that. Um, and uh, certainly there are sometimes priests who don't, you know, who, who s behave with a kind of sense of entitlement. Um, it's a danger when you're, when you're given a position of authority. It's a danger that you also see in the Hollywood executives. You see it in politicians, um, you know, who, who begin to think that they're more important than the people that they're representing and all that kind of thing. I, I don't want to say that there is no um, uh, authority there or that it's 
inappropriate somehow to acknowledge that someone who's entrusted with a particular role in, in any common project deserves a kind of, um, well, there, Aquinas talks about the, the unequal dignity that people have, like the president gets a mansion and a limousine, you know, other people don't get that. Uh, but we all think it's appropriate for the president to live in the White House and to have a limousine because of the role that he's exercising. So that's not an abuse of authority. That's kind of it, judges. Uh, we all have to stand up when they walk into the courtroom and we call them your honor. Um, it's not because they have some personal characteristic. Uh, it's because of the, the role that they, that they have in the system of justice that calls for that kind of honor given to them. I don't want to do away with all of that. I think there is some of that also in the church um, that is appropriate and some that is uh, susceptible to abuse. I, I'm, I don't know if I've really answered your question. I mean, uh, or have I gotten at the essence of what? For the most part, yeah. Um, I think, let, though, let, let, actually, another thing. Okay, that's fine. Another student Hi, I'm John Henry. I'm a senior at Notre Dame. And I had a question. I don't think in your talk you mentioned anything about the role of women in the church going forward. But that's obviously something that a lot of people bring up. So I just want to get your perspective on, perspective on that, if there's a role for women deacons or even priests. Well, I think on that question, you know, the, the women priest question, even Pope Francis just recently has said that's off the table. I think that it has been clarified uh, in a definitive way. So I don't think that's... Um, uh, maybe I could say a word about why it's been clarified, uh, or you know. So, it's sometimes unhelpful to just use the argument from authority. Well, the Pope said it, and therefore, you know, the case is closed, uh, even though that that is true. Um, but what's the debate over that, or what's the what's the history behind it? Um, and that calls for both uh, an account of the history that you have uh, the choice of Jesus of. 12 men as his apostles, and the continuous tradition of the church uh, that it would, this authority would be handed on to men. Okay, so that's also kind of a, an argument from history and the church's practice. And then you'd have to say, well, why? Why is that the case? And that is a big question, and um, one that's in contemporary context where a discussion of um, gender identity and what is really the, the essence of the difference between men and women, and how do we understand that, is um, it's, a, it's a tricky question to, to articulate in the contemporary context. So I don't know that I'll have uh, the, I don't know if I, we're, maybe that's a sign that light is coming. Um, so I do think that it requires some uh, account of the complementary, complementarity of male and female, of men and women, and of the distinction, and of the right role that that implies uh, in the body of Christ. So it's not to suggest that being uh, capable of ordination uh, puts you like in a, you know, in a, in a higher place vis-a-vis -vis God or something like that. Um, it's the exercise of a particular ministry, a particular authority uh, in the church uh, women exercise authority in a different way and in a complementary way, and the church will be, I think, you know, this is what 
if you were to ask the same question of, say, John Paul II, who, who wrote this um, uh, letter regarding this issue um, and was you know, kind of issued the decisive clarification, if you go and, and look at that, he's trying to articulate an understanding of the complementary dignity of women, uh, which doesn't take the same shape as it does uh, for men. So I think um, this is also something that Pope Francis has recently spoken about, the, a desire to resist setting up a clerical model as the standard that everyone needs to shoot for. The Second Vatican Council actually tried to underline that everyone in the church has a call to holiness, and therefore there are different vocations that have uh, you know, a very high dignity, and we shouldn't try to reduce all of the vocations to a kind of clericalizing vocation. That is also, uh, could be called a, a certain clericalism to think that you just have to be like, like the priest in order to be a serious person in the church or something, and that's not true. Um, so I think that those, all those things would be mixed into the, to the answer. With respect to women deacons, that's an interesting, so there's been a lot of discussion about that lately. Uh, I'm not an expert on the issue of um, the history there, and there may be some people much more expert here at Notre Dame uh, than me, but I can just give you in resume what I understand to be the, uh, an element of the discussion, like just in terms of what's the history there. You do have references to uh, female deacons or some, what looks like references to female deacons in the early sources, some in the New Testament, some in the patristic writings. What are they referring to? Well, two, two things seem to be the, the patristic case or the, the ancient situation. On the one hand, you had um, women who were married to deacons who would then be like given the appellation, a deaconess, uh, but didn't necessarily imply that they were exercising any, any ministry. Um, it was just in the same way that wives of priests, and there were married priests in the ancient church, um, also had that appellation. Uh, even though they weren't exercising any kind of uh, ministry as a, as a priestess or something like that. Um, so that's one uh, branch of the evidence. Another branch of the evidence is that, you know, baptisms in the ancient church were done in the nude. Um, and so actually this was a significant part of why they had women instituted to perform these baptisms because it was precisely out of uh, a concern for chastity uh, with respect to the the bishop or the priest doing the baptism. So the woman would be there to, to uh, basically make sure that this was, um, that the baptism was being done in a chaste way. The other thing was, you know, very much like you might find in some uh, Muslim cultures today, there was a, a lot of um, kind of shielding of women. And so, uh, you know, if you had a group of women living in a, in a home, um, a priest, and when one of them is sick, in danger of death, and needs to receive the Eucharist, uh, the church wants to provide the Eucharist for someone sick, uh, but it would be considered radically uh, inappropriate for a priest, as a man, to go into the private rooms of a woman. And so, it would, so they had women deputed to do that. Um, okay, so that seems to be the historical basis, but it was never women deacons uh, in the sense of like functioning liturgically at mass, reading the gospels or preaching. I mean, I think in the ancient world, pre, uh, male deacons also did not preach. That's a fairly recent uh, development. So, um, but those seem to be the questions that are involved today. 
And so it seems like maybe there's a mismatch there. But anyway, that, I'm not an expert on that. I don't want to uh, hold myself out as giving a decisive answer on any of that. May I add, just as a woman in the church, um, I think it's a, it's, you have to be careful to not be forcing feminist ideology, which is a more modern concept, right, onto the church. And understanding that the role of women, in, women play a significant role in the church and always have, have historically, right? They went prayer through religious orders, and especially as mothers who are charged with carrying on, passing on the tradition of the faith, right? And really raising the future saints of our culture. And so to minimize women to have to be in a position equal to men and put that onto the church can be really dangerous. Now, the role of the priest is one of service, right? So it really is, I mean, I don't want to say you'd be beneath us, but like, not in that sense, but for you to be able to serve all of us, especially as women, to provide us the sacraments, putting women in that position isn't necessary, right? It's, it's really just a modern ideology being forced onto the church to try to break down the, the hierarchy and the tradition, and then that then breaks down the family, right? Then you have women who are choosing not to be in a position of, of prayer and service and want to just be equated to what a man's job is, right? Thank you so much, Father. My name is Maggie Garnett. I'm a sophomore here and a fellow in the Tocqueville program. Um, I guess I'm wondering, as sort of Catholics and undergrads at Notre Dame stepping into mature faith in like the wake of the sexual abuse crisis, what you see, how you see this transforming the church going forward, if you think that it will be an opportunity for a real renewal and increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life, or you think that the immediate effect will be sort of a shrinking to the church back to missionary or small Christian communities, and I guess what you think the church looks like going forward? Well, that's a difficult question. I don't know that I have any special insight into that um, other than, you know, maybe it's both. I mean, I think maybe there will be a kind of shrinking. Um, I think that's happening for other reasons as well. You know, it's not just the scandals. I think sometimes the scandals are used as a kind of label or explanation, almost like an excuse for a larger infidelity that's, you know, there's been a kind of growing, um, a growing decrease, a, 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 a drop off in Catholic practice of the faith for a while in, in the formation of the faith. And the reasons for that are very complex and difficult to, difficult to pinpoint exactly. But sometimes the scandals are the, like the last straw for people or the reason that they give when they're asked about it. But you know, it's always tricky to, to figure out what the real cause is, it seems to me. Like if you do a survey, you do a you know, Gallup poll uh, of Catholics who, are, who have stopped practicing the faith, and you ask them, why have you stopped practicing the faith? Those answers are important to take seriously. But they also may um, not actually give us the full picture. I mean, in other words, someone who stops practicing the faith will sometimes say, oh, I did it because I heard too many bad homilies, or that priest was rude to me, or, um, or because of the scandals, or uh, I don't agree with the church's teaching on X, Y, or Z, or whatever. But it also may be, I mean, just as a priest who hears confessions, you know that you know, someone who's fallen into sins 
that become habitual sins, they probably are not going to keep coming back to church for their, the trajectory of their lives unless they are willing to give the sin up. Um, and we try to hide that from ourselves. Like we, often that's not transparent to me myself, that the reason I'm uncomfortable with God is because I am not living rightly before God. Um, but people who are not living rightly before God don't want to hang out in church, typically, um, until they decide that, they, that they're going to turn their lives around. Um, so uh, if I can just add one, one more thing, this is just a little um, plug for being a bad Catholic, um, which I, I would like to have more bad Catholics uh, in the church defined in this way. Um, you know, it's uh, like one thing when you meet somebody who says, well, um, you know, I I'm, I'm want the church to change uh, this, that, or the other thing about the church's teaching or whatever, um, and so I, I disagree uh, with the church's teaching. I'd much rather have the, you know, like the taxi driver who, who says to me, this kind of thing happens to me regularly, uh, hey, Father, say a prayer for me. And I say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, he'll start talking about his background and say, well, you know, if you want to go to confession, I'm happy to hear your confession right now. We can get you all squared away. And he'll say, oh, no, Father, I'm not ready for that right now, but, you know, yeah, say a prayer for me. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying, well, I know that I'm not living the way I should, but I kind of hope that somehow, someday, I'm going to get it squared away. And that's actually a much more hopeful situation to be in than someone who says, oh, I'm going to chuck the church, or uh, I think the church needs to change to configure itself to my views rather than the other way around. Nice to see you, it's Father. Great to see you. As someone who gave you your start in teaching, I feel like I have responsibility for your presentation. <laughs> uh, thank you for your thoughtful remarks. I'd like to just anchor it one step into reality for a moment, beyond the systematic theology. And that is that we have still failed to perceive a proper remedy for the behavior, none of the remedies that we've uh, put on the table, the compensation paid to the individual victim, uh, can in any way actually uh, provide a healing to the victim. It it's all, has all the disadvantages of, that money has as compensation. It never really addresses the underlying harm. But we do have examples of the church now having a structure that is advancing zero tolerance going forward. But we have yet to address the perpetrators of the harm because we sort of do it on a kind of haphazard basis. Somebody who happens to be caught in a headline like Monsignor Bradford, who now has connected financial corruption with possibly with the corruption of this priestly behavior. My question is this. Should there not be a responsibility of the bishop, the ordinary, for his immediate clergy and flock in the sense that he should offer his resignation, not because 
he has done anything wrong in particular, but because institutionally he represents the possibility of healing. And offer that resignation to the Holy Father, not in the expectation that the Holy Father has to accept every single resignation, but that it will be an opportunity to study, in particular, whether the health of that diocese is being advanced by the people who have its care as their shepherd. So if, in fact, in Chile, for example, the fact that the every sitting bishop offered to set aside, wasn't that at least a sign to those who have been injured? And those who have been injured are not just the immediate injury, as you pointed out, but far larger in terms of the church. And giving the Pope the opportunity to clean house in light of these other characterizations and matters that we're talking about, namely the role of women in the church and the married priesthood and so forth. But it also provides a, a definite remedy in the sense that there is somebody paying an institutional penalty that doesn't erase the harm to the child, but it is at least felt personally in terms of magnitude. So that was, you can see that I haven't helped you with succinctness. Um, and so uh, give me your thoughts on that. Well, I, I should thank you, first of all, publicly for, as you said, giving me my first teaching job. So uh, as dean of the Catholic U uh, Law School, uh, Dean Kamik, uh recruited me to teach a Catholic social teaching class, which was a great start for me. Um, so I'm very grateful to that, and it's great to see you uh, after many years, I think, since, since we've seen each other. So uh, I, yes, I agree that there should be more, um, there needs to be more hard-hitting, pragmatic, practical, real um, kind of structural reforms. Trying to craft those is a little tricky. I, I mean, maybe I've used that word too much, but I think um, it is difficult. Um, I think that there uh, should be some system of accountability for bishops for Episcopal misconduct, like the 2002 Charter uh, Dallas norms for priests and priestly misconduct. And there hasn't really been that. Um, there, you know, of course, the U.S. bishops proposed something like that. And then there was a kind of, I think, miscommunication and disagreement with the Vatican about exactly procedurally, at least, how to go forward with that. So now there is something in place that Pope Francis has instituted. Uh, it's difficult, of course, on a global scale because the situation in different countries is quite different. I think in the US, um, we're further along than most other countries. So actually, you know, I think that's a good thing for the US Epis Episcopacy. But that might be a reason why we could go further with the remedies uh, with respect to bishops, then would then the global church might be ready for at this point. Um, what about the specific remedy that you are? So I think it's other things that could be included here. I think there should be work done with uh, seminary formation. I think having lay review boards, um, which I've experienced a little bit uh, from the um, you know the internal governance of of my Dominican province you know, how, that, how those review boards function. Often they have lawyers. I've got some friends who are on those uh, sorts of boards. Um, I think that works well. 
Uh, why? Because it's a kind of external uh, body of expertise and authority who can kind of put their hand on the shoulder of the bishop, and especially when we're talking about Episcopal misconduct, you know, on maybe a, a, a committee of bishops that's charged with this responsibility, and say, uh, Bishop, this guy is going to do it again. Like, you cannot let him off here. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of priests, you know, of course, you're a minister of mercy. You want to be merciful. And the, the ambient culture is biased against instituting disciplinary punishments. Um, but I think we need more disciplinary punishments. But that's a, that's a rather countercultural thing to, to do and to say. OK, what about resignations? I am um, of two minds about that, because on the one hand, I see the, the value of, of what you proposed. On the other hand, as a theological matter, I am not a huge fan of resignations. Um, and sometimes uh, what might result would be the bishops who have a more sensitive conscience would resign, and the ones who are maybe the bigger problems wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't resign. Um, now, maybe it's an automatic process of resignation that you're thinking of, like, like happens with bishops when they reach age 75. Even that, now th this is, uh, I'm speaking totally off the cuff here, and it may be uh, you know, getting myself in trouble to go on record with a half-baked thought. But um, you know, the institution of uh, retirement for bishops entered into Catholic practice only after the Second Vatican Council with, I think, no serious reflection on what that would mean in terms of the theology of holy orders and of the episcopacy, and also what it would mean sociologically for the church and how, how that would affect the church. We just instituted it, and now it's become kind of universally accepted except for the pope. Uh, so the pope is the only one who doesn't age out and automatically uh, lose his office, as it were. Um, but maybe that's not the right way to go. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't have a, a decided conclusion on that. But if the bishop is your father, then maybe he shouldn't stop uh, acting that way just because he's getting to an advanced age. Maybe it's putting too many values with respect to like managerial efficiency into the equation. So if that's the case, then I might be a little more reticent to propose a system that's going to accelerate the churn in our Episcopal you know, ranks. Um, but I'm not, you know, so that would be my hesitation about that proposal. But I, I don't know that I have a final answer. Good.